0: So at Uber, for example, every outage that where riders couldn't take a trip, they would call it an L5. So that means basically you can't take a trip on Uber. And so I was one time on an L5. I I wasn't the commander on it, uh, but but I was part of it. Where there was this experimentation service that either returns uh, uh, control or treatment. And so this service started returning. Well, we knew after, but, but basically this service started returning everything in control. And so, but before we knew that, the person leading the outages was, was there's like an art in staying calm, in, in, in summarizing what's happening. Because you know the app is not working, you're under an incredible stress because you're losing maybe tens of millions of dollars every, every minute, if not more. And you have to bring it back on again. And so basically you have, there's this art of staying calm, of bringing everyone that needs to be in the, in the room and, 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 and summarizing, and just like really kind of, you go into robotic mode where you say, okay, this is what we know, this is what we don't know, and kind of basically delegating
1: some of those tasks. Good morning good afternoon and good evening everyone thank you very much for joining yet another episode of the glitch podcast uh today i have a very special guest we have george who's uh, joining us uh, for this episode george has extensive experience working in big tech uh, he has started his career at microsoft where he spent uh, four years approximately working there as a software engineer on multiple projects then i think he decided to go solo and 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 kick off his own startup Uh, After that he joined Uber where he also worked as a senior software engineer for about 4 years and then after that, he joined Airbnb. And now uh, I think he is spending also the majority of his time consulting and building up his newsletter. Uh, I'm gonna drop the link for his new newsletter right here. Feel free to subscribe. He has a lot of amazing tidbits and small snippets about his engineering experience across all of these different great companies. George, I'm very happy to have you with me today. Thank you very much for taking the time.
0: Thanks, Bess. I'm super excited to do this.
1: Anything else you want to tell us about your background before we get started with the uh, with the questions?
0: No, that's pretty much it.
1: All right, fantastic. So Anna, I'm very excited, Sarah, to learn about everything you have experienced. And we're gonna start by asking you the most fundamental question. Why, in your opinion, does the world in general, right, perceive big tech as um, references for good engineering and business practices?
0: Uh, it's mostly because the. It's not definitely true. There's a lot of good engineers now in big tech to start with, but it has to do a lot with their hiring practices. And so usually these employers are highly desirable uh, employers, and so they get a lot of candidates, and so they get also to 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 be a bit picky, and so. Uh, they go over rigorous interviews and then basically you go over a phone screening and then maybe you do another phone screenings and then you do on site where you go over programming and system designs. And so the idea is that if one of those HR departments or engineering teams uh, gave you an okay, then, uh, then that's a good signal. So it goes a bit was, 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 was kind of getting through the interviews, but, but, you know, if, if you worked at big Tech, it doesn't mean automatically you're a good engineer just you get a bit <laughs> of more credibility and there's a lot of amazing engineers uh now in big tech too
1: okay so you think that because the fact that they have good engineers or maybe even top talent and because they can afford to hire that top talent that they have good practices because i see in the field a lot of people think that like big tech they m- mostly have the best engineering practices which I- we both know that it's not necessarily true, but but do you think that perception is only due because that they can, they can hire the best talent? Do you think it's also related to their performance maybe in the market?
0: It comes because usually you're at a certain scale. And and if you're a small company with four or five users, you, you, you want to take care of those users and you want to give them a great experience. But once you're at a scale of, of, of a Google with a Gmail product, for example, you have to keep it up and running and just to keep it up and running forces you to have good practices uh, it's it's mostly driven by the scale and then the amount of users you're driving and so that automatically puts you in a in a place where uh, you have to maximize for quality you have to preserve the value that's been created and a lot of these practices come from there and it's kind of it, it's self-generating so you hire you can afford you know good engineers and and in in software engineering in general it's the craft that's communicated mm-hmm. from one engineer to to another and so so that's another reason why uh, you also have this uh, reputation of having good good uh, good engineering uh, engineering excellence mm-hmm. it's because of that too it's it's one it pushes you from from the need of the company to to have good practices so it keeps running and two because you get some really good engineers that do the mentoring and and, and, and then keeps the, the cycle going
1: okay very nice so i'm gonna drill a little bit more into that uh, but first i want to ask you did you always work on feature building teams
0: i was yes actually that's that's uh, that's accurate i mostly worked on top of the stack i didn't do a lot of infra work uh, on my career and so i was mostly product-facing, and that's that's where I spend the most time in my career.
1: Mostly front-end, back-end, or the whole thing?
0: Mostly back-end, but, but I moved across the stack. But but mostly user-facing, uh, so I rarely did any infra work. I have a lot of respect for infra and DevOps, and I know how hard it is, But uh, and I'm dealing a bit with that now, and I'm getting <laughs> a lot of appreciation with that. I'm getting a lot of appreciation to that. But uh, but yeah, I was mostly uh, product basic.
1: Definitely the the people who help us put in the plumbing in place allow the the engineers to do the best work because um, they can either make your experience really good or, or really horrible. So so they have a lot of power yeah. when it comes to infrastructure. Yeah, exactly.
0: At, at Uber, yeah, you know, we had a portal where you click a button, you got fifty machines, and at Airbnb yeah. was a configuration. So yeah. so yes.
1: It changes huh all right so out of all of the places where you worked right so Microsoft uber Airbnb and I know this is gonna be a tricky question uh, which team had the most mature software development lifecycle when I say software development lifecycle I'm referring to basically how they write code and how they publish code uh, and how they um, you know maintain good quality code um, so which one of these places had the most mature environment
0: so I have a lot of friends in a lot of these companies. So I'm not going uh, <laughs> to... Uh, and, and it's like everything in computer science. It's, it's, it's a trade-off. So so basically, um, uh, at Airbnb, they had this very mature uh, environment. they had a monorepo where you can upgrade a library. It upgrades everywhere. Uh, they had kind of consistent... Uh, every every microservices had kind of the same pattern. So you can pick any service and then go and kind of... The, be, be comfortable with it. Uh, they had this system where you can kind of see all the services that calls you and all the service you're calling. And if anyone is this down, you can see which one is down. They had a good internal um, search library where, uh, where basically you can really search. They did a really good job with that. And especially during the COVID years, like it's very easy to discover uh, documentation and, and, and things like that, that they, they have a medium article on that. That's, that's pretty pretty good. Uh, at Uber, um, it, it's, it's completely different. Like for example, at Airbnb, you don't, not everyone goes, wakes up and decide to book a trip at the same time uh, to, to Paris. Where at Uber, if it starts raining in New York, you suddenly get a surge. And so it's a completely different problem, completely different dynamics. Things are way more real time, and you can also see a bit the difference. Uh, Uber is a mobile-first company, so there was an incredibly mature mobile team with plugins, so you can automatically turn things off, on and off uh, on the mobile experience. And so you can also feel that Uber started as a mobile-first company, where Airbnb was, was didn't start as a mobile-first. So a bit of a difference because of the business itself, and so that's that's uh, uh, that's kind of the difference. So so both had different needs and and different uh, requirements, but uh, so so yeah, that's that's basically it. And I spend most I spend way more time at Uber, so I can talk more a bit more about that than than Airbnb.
1: Sounds good. So so um I want to focus on the maturity of their their capabilities. So for example. Um, out of the two companies that you just mentioned, which which one was the... Which company did you feel like it was faster to be able to publish features, for example, end-to-end, right? So from idea to production, which place was, let's say, more performant or was faster?
0: Both were pretty agile companies. Um, I... Uh, at Uber was super quick to do an end-to-end... Uh, Basically, we would start a feature, we would publish it, we would put it behind an experiment, and and, and then we would uh, go to market with it, and, uh, and that's pretty exciting. You can see kind of the feedback at it. Um, Airbnb also were pretty quick, so so really both had uh, had a good uh, had a good appreciation for velocity and and engineering. So so wouldn't pick any one of them specifically.
1: Would you, were you delivering like multiple times a day, multiple times a week? What was the cadence of, of your deliveries?
0: So at Uber, I'll, I'll go for Uber more specifically. Uh, I worked on a team called Uber for Business. And, and you can basically literally ship the uh, ship feature and uh, you would publish it and, and then that's it. It's live. Uh, so we could do that multiple times a day. Uh, um, I didn't want to work a lot on the mobile side, but but basically, it you you can build a mobile feature, and then you get basically the first cut, and then the second cut, and then it's in in the app store. Uh, my second team, so that was Uber for Business. My second team was was marketplace, and so we would uh, we would run things uh, we, we we would run things behind experiments. So you would start an experiment, and everyone would start in the beginning being in control. And then, little by little, you would move to, to, to move move a little bit of uh, users to, to treatment, and see basically if it makes uh, uh, if it if, if users are happy with it, or if, it makes, if it makes the marketplace uh, be in a better shape. And so, this was kind of the process behind things. And and if if it's a successful feature for the for for the marketplace, and if, if the users likes it, you would basically go to 100 percent
1: fantastic how was and this so, yeah, uh... you
0: could chip, you could ship multiple times uh, you had to gate it by, by your configuration but basically yeah you could you could ship multiple times of course on if you're working on mobile and you have bits on, on mobile then you have to wait a bit more
1: by configuration you mean feature flags
0: feature flags yeah okay. either feature flags or experimentation
1: got it experiments so a b testing type of thing
0: exactly yeah yeah yeah
1: okay, okay. clear um how was the, i want to talk a little bit about the team before we dig more deeper into the tech and the pipelines um but how was how, was, how were the teams structured for you know both of both of these teams you worked on um how, like for example how what was their size were they cross-functional was everyone on them full stack or was it just like maybe the teams were just back end what can you tell me about?
0: uh i uh, the teams were I've seen the most success, and 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 the teams were you had front end and back end, uh, because usually it's a bit of a different skill, and and you can do a lot of back end work and and you design the API and it's usually different repos, and then you can do the front end work, and it needs like additional skills, so it's it's incredibly hard to be an expert in both, in my opinion. So so. Um, In the front-end, you're optimizing for different things, for for elegance, for, right? It's a completely different set of tools. If you're doing doing web front-end, then you you go over React, and it's completely different tooling and testing and skills. Uh, And and then the same on the back-end. So usually a feature team would be a front-end engineer, a back-end engineer, uh, an engineering manager, and uh, a product manager and sometimes also a designer. Designers wouldn't be in the day-to-day, usually from what I've seen. Sometimes they will actually, it depends from team to team, Uh, but but, but that's mostly kind of the core team. And then this team is independent. And so they can basically execute without needing any help from the outside world. The front-end engineer can take care of most of the front-end work, back-end can take care of of basically everything uh, related to back-end, and then the product managers defining the features and, and helping out with, 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 the, with basically, the, the roadmap. And the engineering manager is, is kind of driving the whole process. And, uh, yeah, that's, that's basically how it was. And and usually, kind of good collaboration between a back-end engineer and front engineer is incredibly important to the health of, uh, of the team and the ability to deliver features. And so, usually, you kind of uh, agree on interfaces between the API and uh, and uh, and, the, and and between the front-end and, and the back-end on certain APIs. And then you deliver on them. And uh, you get things working uh, from the back-end on the APIs. And you, you put the front-end. And then there are different challenges on them. And they require different engineering skills. And that's another reason. It's not only the toolset. It's just like a different uh, challenges there, how, how you design things. And so, yeah. But a good team collaborations between the different uh, people in in, in, in those different roles are incredibly important.
1: Perfect. That's always essential. And we're going to brush a little bit on that when we talk about collaboration in between teams and features that touch multiple, uh, many of these cross-functional or uh, feature teams. But first, I want to talk about how did your team manage infrastructure? So let's say you want to build a feature, but that feature requires that set up pipelines, for example, for its, you know, integration, deployment, so on and so forth. And then maybe you need, an, I don't know, maybe an extra database, or maybe you need a, a caching layer that did not exist before. How would you deal with these things? So
0: at small companies, right, you you, you don't have this problem. You would start, you create, you have your, your to start with, you'll have only one database, or you would go to your AWS or whatever cloud provider, or, 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 or Azure or, or GCP or whatever cloud provider you have and you would pick everything you need from there. Uh, once you get to bigger companies, uh, usually you interface with other teams. And so you would, um, if you have a really big service that needs a lot of machines, you, you get to a sort of an approval from, uh, uh, from basically uh, higher management or the CTO uh, to, to, to work, like, to, to explain why you need this much machines, because they will start uh, impacting the budget uh and 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 usually there will be a data team for the database so your interface usually in the beginning they won't have a formal process so you would just uh, basically try to put things together and the more mature it is the more basically they have self-serve and so you can go and self-serve and you can see it move from duct taping everything to having a, a portal where you can request things and same for the infra basically uh at Uber, uh, we, we, we basically had a portal where you can uh, basically pick the number of machines you need and all of that. At Airbnb, there was a really good architecture called uh, OneTouch, and it was all configuration-based. So in the configuration, you would say, I need these numbers of machines with those uh, configuration, and then and go from there. So, so mostly, mostly it's kind of the what's really good and bad in working with big tech. The good is is there's you just put a configuration and suddenly you have all the machines that you need and so it's very decoupled especially the one that have couple of years under their belt so they they do a good job in having platform or infra teams and program teams and 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 it helps everyone and for the platform and infra team basically their customers are the program teams uh, the bad part is a lot of things get abstracted to you and so you don't get to uh, to understand a bit and experience everything that's happening. And that's kind of a big advantage in working in smaller companies.
1: Did you have a lot of custom tooling in place? For example, did you use Git or did you use something else? Did, where did you host? I, I I know you cannot really talk a lot about the details sometimes, you know, because of NDAs and whatnot, but as much as you can, did you have a lot of custom tooling in place? Um, how did you do continuous integration? For example, your unit tests, did they run in the traditional stuff that we're used to or was there something specific that these companies have built
0: uh it was pretty standard we had git uh you you, you whenever you land you run your unit test uh and you make sure you have no no errors and, and also in the in the in the CD they would run again at at airbnb they had github uh, at uber they had fabricator uh and um and a couple of, uh, I, most of them didn't have integration tests that would trigger, but some of them did. And you had a whole set of observability, uh, making sure that things are up and running. And, and if anything breaks, usually those observability would trigger. And on top of that, it's kind of channel or company-wide observability. And on top of that, you have your own dashboards and metrics and instrumentations uh, to, 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 to double check that everything is, is good. Uh, along with basically the the the, the rollout and um, and 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 basically the feature gating that we talked to about. So pretty standard your, your unit test would run on check-ins uh, along with with basically any linters and anything like that. couple of services that I worked on had hundred percent code coverage so so there's also the coverage part. And then after that, uh, it will be it will be uh, live and then it's up to you to monitor it and see how it goes. Uh, but, uh, but yeah, there was a lot of investment in, in, in observability and monitoring and all of that.
1: And we're gonna get to that in a bit, but first regarding tests, for example, like how deep did you go with your testing strategies? Was it unit testing? Did you even go to integration testing level, for example? Did you do more involved testing or just unit was sufficient?
0: So it was mostly unit. You would build your future feature, and you put the unit tests, and 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 it's not like the end-to-end integration type of of of, of testing. There were specific teams that used to do these kind of things, hmm. and and uh, and and uh, and they would do kind of the end-to-end. Uh, the problem was was um, it could be very valuable to have integration tests. The problem is it, it sometimes it starts giving. Uh, false, false, positives. Uh, false positives and so uh, and and if you have a if, if you're just pushing pushing uh, uh, features and every time you get this uh, integration test first that takes a lot of time and two that's not super reliable it frustrates a lot of the engineers so 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 there's a kind of a trade-off between the value in terms of quality between of like not breaking things down uh, uh, versus versus um Versus basically velocity it can be done but 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 it has to be very uh structurally done and maybe maybe there's a better place to do this in terms of kind of the overall health system because if you, if you have all your dashboards and all of your monitoring in place then basically that would take uh, uh, that that could be uh
1: that Just test impact. in production, basically, and then observe yeah, yeah. it. Yeah, <laughs> you know, at
0: one at one time it has to go to production, but but yeah, you can maybe catch it before. Also, the rollout start strategy can make a big difference there. Mm-hmm. And so, instead of testing in production, you can start. Uh, usually, we you roll out into like a little Canary city. Canary, yeah. And so you can start in a little city, see how it goes there. The worst it can impact there is fifty people. Then you increase that a bit. Then you go for one data center. Then you go for another data center. Uh, yeah. yeah, it can it makes work. A big if, it, if, it's, yeah. if it's stable enough, integration tests could be awesome. It gives you this kind of really good, uh, uh, like like a, a self assurance that things are okay. But if it takes a lot of time, and then every push that you're doing now is a thirty minute to, to get it uh, on 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 main, uh, then that, that could be annoying. So as everything we do, there's always trade offs.
1: Makes sense. Perfect. And uh, did you have traditional quality assurance teams or none at all?
0: not at all. Uh, when I started my career, uh, we had it at uh, at uh, Microsoft. So there was uh, they used to be called as that software design engineer and test. And I think even now Microsoft doesn't have them anymore. And so I. Uh, None of the places besides Microsoft had kind of traditional QA teams. Uh, I'm not a super fan of it, personally. Uh, it's just whenever you introduce a quality assurance team, you start having this question of who owns quality. Is it is it the dev that wrote the feature? Is it QA that was supposed to see? And so then you get this question, who's the ultimate person that owns quality? And... I've seen it. It delays delivery of a product or a feature. it, it, it basically delays um, delivery a lot. So the second you introduce a QA, uh, you automatically double your your timeline because development will work a developer will work on the feature and then QA will test it. and then automatically without doing anything, you double the the timeline. And so I've, it could be useful for very critical flows uh, it could be useful to have you know one engineer really uh, trying to break the feature and be incredibly uh, could be an incredible return on investments on that but having systematic qa with every feature team i think i think could be counterproductive i've seen qa doing a great great work in building infra testing and so 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 kind of making it easy for everyone to test and, 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 and adding kind of new test tools on, on, on the CI CD and in, in introducing tooling there uh, would be stories, for example, on the front ends. And then kind of introducing, testing part of the development process. It could be incredibly useful, uh, but yeah, yeah. It also depends on the product, right? If you're working on something that's super critical, uh, medical devices, then by all means uh, you need the uh, QA, but uh, most of the times maybe you you it it can become quite basically the pros the the cons exceed far exceeds the pros, uh, and I I've seen it I've seen this happening, especially early on in my career in Microsoft, and then they don't I, I'm pretty sure they don't have it anymore.
1: Got it. Um, yeah, that's that's pretty clear. Also, this is a trend I've been observing in in many other um, you know places, and I, I can understand uh, some of the bottlenecks that it it introduces. Let's talk about a topic that a lot of engineers hate, uh, which is the on call rotations. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so <laughs> what I want yeah the best topic ever. <laughs> um, how did you handle on calls on these teams, and did you do post mortems? And uh, did you draft post mortem uh, reports, for example? Uh,
0: first, it's just impossible now to do software engineering in this time of age without, uh, without tackling on calls. So it's so embedded now, the engineering culture in general. And, and, and as, as much as it's just almost impossible to uh, avoid it. And, and and it becomes it's starting to become a core tenet of software engineering, especially observability and and, and, and having a healthy uh, on-call rotation. Uh, I've done all of the above, so I've I've I've, I've been on outages, calls. I let outages call, and uh, I contributed to postmortems. And I uh, also uh, wrote Ossert was the main author on, on Postmortems. And so, yeah, I've done, uh, I've, done, I've done all of the above.
1: Can you tell me a little bit more about the process of on-call? Like, do you have a pager or do you have a phone specific for the on-call? How do you get called whenever there's an outage? What really happens? Can you just maybe ex- give us an example scenario?
0: So usually there's basically the primary on-call engineer and he's kind of the i don't like to say first line of defense because he's kind of too much responsibility he's kind of the first person to be alerted and usually this engineer would uh, check uh, make sure make sure that's a valid alert uh, check that if there's an outage happening and basically at this time make a call whether to have an incident or not and it's, it's a very good practice to encourage engineers to be able to kind of page their secondary on-call. So usually it's kind of primary. And if the primary doesn't respond on the on-call, it will go to the secondary engineer. And so at that time, uh, they, they, they and if there's an incident, uh, usually the person on-call is, every company calls it something, but, but usually is the commander and so he would uh, he would be responsible of this outage end-to-end. Uh, end. And so usually uh, he will make sure that every person that needs to be on the outage call is there. And uh, the engineer will page them too. Usually, Most of the company, all of them had pager duty. So, uh, so I guess it's the favorite company of everyone in the valley <laughs> or, or everyone in the world now. <laughs> mm-hmm. And so they would be page on on, on pager duty. And, and you have to respond, basically. You have to act your your alerts. Um, and then uh, starts the fun part of figuring out what's happening. And so sometimes it's clear, and uh, sometimes it's, it's not clear at all. And so you just don't know what's happening. And sometimes you ha- have, like, second-degree uh, impact. And so, for example, I was part of an outage one time at Uber. So at Uber, for example, every outage that where riders couldn't take a trip. They would call it an L5. So that means basically you can't take a trip on Uber. And so I was one time on an L5. I, I wasn't the commander on it, uh, but but I was part of it, where there was this experimentation service that ASA returns uh, uh, control or treatment. And so this service started returning, well, we knew after, but, but basically this service started returning everything in control and so but before we knew that the person leading the outages was was there's like an art in staying calm in 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 summarizing what's happening because you know the app is not working you're under an incredible stress because you're losing maybe tens of millions of dollars every every minute if not more and you have to bring it back on again and so basically you have there's this art of staying calm of bringing everyone that needs to be in the, in the room and and, and, and and summarizing and just like really kind of, you go into robotic mode where you say, okay, this is what we know, this is what we don't know, and kind of basically delegating some of those tasks. And suddenly, bit by bit, you start uh, uh, kind of piecing and understanding a bit more what's happening. And uh, and and, 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 then, and then suddenly you get it and there's a ha moment. And then you move to the fun part of like, what do we do now? How do we Mediation. mitigate it? Yeah, how do you mitigate it? And so do you roll back? And it's like the whole thing that you do at this time. You just see what kind of, before this, I'm talking before mitigation, I trying to see what, what's happening. Uh, you, you go over all the changes. Was anything deployed at that time? Did any configuration change at that time? And then uh, and and then you try to, to really kind of keep going keep peeling until you find the, the issue once you find it then it becomes how do you mitigate it you roll back do you do you, do, you, do you move to a data center do you, do you roll over a certain data center and um, and uh, or you know just push uh, uh, just do a fix usually the worst thing you can do is is, is, is push a fix in the middle of it a so fix, yeah. the, the, the the forward fix is, is, is almost always not a good idea. And so you usually try as much as possible in this time to roll back, catch your breath, go to sleep, and then next day try to work on a fix. Uh, and so, so yeah, there's the mitigation. And then part of the post-mortem, one of the most healthy thing an engineering organization can do is to bring postmortems. mortems uh, and, and you, you don't want to do it for every bug uh, but that becomes a bug, not a post-mortem. But any huge incident that impacts the mission of a company, a uh, post-mortem will, will, will be incredibly good. And it's costly, right? we are stopping everything you're doing, not working on features. You're not fixing bugs. Yeah. And it's very disruptive. But usually the, the returns you get on it is tremendous. And so you go over kind of a summary of the outage. Uh, you go over the timeline. And then you go over basically uh, how it was meti- how it was discovered first. Did we discover it in, in through automated alerts? Did we did we it was it manual? Was it like a user somewhere in the part of the world? Was it through support? And you want it as much as possible to be through alerts, where the engineering organization knows about it before anyone else in the world, if possible. And then you move basically how it was mitigated. How could we have mitigated it better? And uh, the last step will be prevention. So, so what 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 do we need to do in our architecture to make sure these kind of things don't happen again? And usually, it means introducing redundancies or doing things a bit differently. But but yeah, a lot of fun.
1: Fantastic. <laughs> this has no. This has been a great narration of the whole journey end to end, and you definitely touched on a lot of pretty much all of the important points about how on-calls happen, incidents happen, incident management, root cause analysis, post-mortems. That was fantastic. Thank you for that. Um, One more thing I wanna ask is about the on-call rotations. Um, How frequently did they happen? Was it like one day a month or was it more of a one week a quarter or?
0: Every company and team does it differently. My favorite is, is, is a week or a couple, either a couple of days or a week. Because uh, this way you can just be 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 the on-call person, uh, be you know know that you won't have uh, you know the best team ever, the best week ever, and uh, and be done with it until it happens again. Okay. And 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 again, on calls are such an important topic now that it plays a big role into the health of the engineering team and organization. So, for example, if a team has a noisy on-call, where the second you, you it's always ringing. And it's just awful. Uh, it's just awful. You know, everyone is waking up at night. Yeah. A lot of time, there's no outages. Not a lot of time. Most of the times. Uh, if not every time. And what happens is even more dangerous. is just like people stop taking those alerts seriously, seriously so you would yeah. you would be having lunch and paid your picture duty will will, will, uh, will trigger and be oh you know no, it's not big and so and it's just really bad and usually in this case you want to stop everything literally everything and make sure you go for one or two or three days without any outage and it needs a lot of discipline to 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 really keep it like this and then keep fine-tuning 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 uh, until you have a healthy monitoring. That being said, if you get to the state, it's super awesome. Because now, you know, the second it triggers, you know you have an outage, you already have your dashboards, and, uh, and, and it's just like, and, 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 and ideally, you know, outage don't happen every day, right? So ideally, in an ideal state, then teams should strive to get there, because otherwise it's incredibly disruptive. Uh, you should have most of your on-call uh, rotations with no incidents, and 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 ideally, uh, ideally, alerts alerts exactly ideally alerts equal equal outage, yeah. uh, and then then that's that's really good. And then the CI CD and the, the the stuff that you have in place, uh, the quality assurance, the, the rollout also shouldn't be a surprise. If you rolled out bit by bit, then it shouldn't be a surprise uh all of this play a big role but but yeah outage will happen from time to time and uh and and having a good culture around that is is also useful
1: definitely this is a gigantic topic because we can talk for hours about like what is the balance what is striking the balance between having enough alerts and for these alerts to be meaningful a lot of companies start by having an abundance of alerts for everything pretty much and that's that's just noise you really want the signal you really want the, as you just mentioned like an alert should mean an actual incident where people need to attend to; otherwise, people will just uh, completely dismiss that. Exactly.
0: Every every then and while you would land on a very high quality alert. Every company has it, and 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 once you find that, it's like a holy grail. And So you would know that basically, if that one triggers, you know, you would you would know there's an outage, and 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 usually yeah. it's it's a good metric that summarizes. A very complicated engineering system, but is this like one metric that kind of really is a good uh, status about the system? And uh, and yeah, once you find this, it's awesome and and it's just a lot of value. It's hard to find, but but once you find it, it's just great.
1: Fantastic. All right, let's switch gears a little bit and let's talk about architecture. Right. So feature teams, great. You, they, they, there's a product manager, they came up with a feature, um, but that feature requires some design, right? Like it's not as simple as adding a button somewhere. It's more, more evolved than that. So on and so forth, who deals with the architecture on the teams that you worked with? Is it the senior engineers? Do you have architects maybe, uh, how, how was it done?
0: I almost never had architects, so it was very, um, very, the, very much, um, the engineer is responsible of the feature. And so it depends on every feature, it depends whether, whether. Uh, it, basically it's mostly the engineer responsible of the architecture. And, um, and the feature would come in either from a product manager or a lot of times it comes from the engineers themselves and it's kind of a bottom to top. And so it's usually something they wanna build or something that they think will create value uh, or something on their backlog. And sometimes also it's a company uh, initiative or a priority. And so one day you would wake up and there's like this huge priority, and they would usually uh, get people from all over the company to, to kind of deliver on. It. So it comes from either top to bottom, uh, depends on the companies. Uh, some some companies more than others, uh, or it could be bottom to top. And those usually are very healthy teams, because the, because folks are close to the code and to the problems. And sometimes it comes from the product uh, organization. And, and, and so it comes from those three places. And so then there'll be a team that will be formed and responsible to delivering that. And usually the engineer would uh, would, would be responsible of uh, of designing it. And and I've seen entry-level engineers design a feature uh, and then it could be up to, to all the levels of uh, uh, of the engineering organization. And so usually they write a little product called the RD, Engineering Requirement Design, I forgot. Uh, and uh, and so they will kind of explain uh, how they are gonna go about it. The biggest value is not it is documenting it and, and also kind of what we consider. And so a really good way of, a good RD will say this is what we're doing. We looked over option two, three, and four, but um, we decided to do this because of those reasons. So so. Anyone reading it would understand the, the the thinking behind this feature. And so, yeah, it doesn't have to be elaborate. It has to be pretty concise. And then we go into the day-to-day of uh, feature implementations.
1: And did you maintain these ERDs or ARDs architecture with... Design records or whatever um, to reflect the as-built because sometimes you design something, but then as you're building it, you discover you know like you have to do some tweaks. Did you re-update them to reflect?
0: No, I always go out of date. I've seen people trying to keep them up to date, and the source of truth is always the code. And uh, and uh, they they will go out of date, and so usually they're valuable. They have they. They reflect the thinking, and a lot of times they are accurate enough. Yeah, mm-hmm. sometimes they change, and they change completely. Usually, people will say deprecated or something like yeah. that. But in the end, the source of truth is the code, and the actual architecture flow in production, which service are calling which service, and that's 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 the only place to get source of truth, and it's incredibly hard to document it. There's a lot of effort that's been done into having self-documenting flows, and where basically <laughs> you get. You, you click on the service, you see all the service that calls in and all the service that they call and, and, and that's awesome. Uh, that's actually really great. But 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 yeah, those ERDs will will be outdated and so but, but that's they're also super valuable because they explain everything in a good way.
1: George, how was the relationship uh, between uh, different teams? So again, let's say we have a feature that touches multiple feature teams, right? You want to build something and you need the collaboration and help from other teams, for example, to build stuff on their end. How was this coordinated? Did, you, did the engineers go by themselves, talk to the other team? Was it handled on the product management level uh, or the engineering management? How was it done? Uh,
0: usually it's done in this ERD. So that's kind of one of the purpose of it, is to align as many people as possible. So it's not only explaining the options, as I said, and, and how it's being built, it's also to align uh, all the teams on it. And usually uh, everyone that's impacted by the feature, whether it's, it's uh, whether basically you're calling downstream or upstream, uh, there will be reviewers on the CRD, and, and they, they will need to be, uh, they need to approve it. And so a big part of the alignment happens uh, through the ERP and, uh, and, uh, and, uh, and, the, and, and getting everyone on the same page. And it's usually driven by the engineers themselves, at least in the companies I've been with.
1: Okay, fantastic. That's great. So, uh, yeah, the RD seems to be a great mechanism to bring everyone uh, on board and align. It's a great uh, as you mentioned, a great documentation, probably not maintained, but it's a, it's a great starting point.
0: And 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 it's 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 basically every team will have their own priorities and sometimes you have to build something and it kind of changes their priorities. Right. And so uh, and then you see you wait for them to let's just say they're rebuilding things. So you wait for them to finish and then you you, you build your feature on top of the new stack, but that means you're going to delay your feature. Or you do it now, and then maybe you have to rewrite it when they do the new things. And you get into those little things. And usually, you would think that everything is official and everything is, is you know, there's like a lot of these uh, processes. Mm-hmm. But a lot of time, it ends up being basically relationships and, 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 and friendship with those teams and, and then exactly. the graphs. And so usually... If you, as an engineer, have built a lot of credibility in in, in, in the bigger uh, the, in the org or in the company,
1: you have and, influence,
0: uh, and then then you get you, you get passes, not only influence, you 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 get passes, mm-hmm. and so uh, teams will teams and team members again, it's not kind of teams. It's usually teams are a bunch of people. So you, you, engineers will give you passes or will accommodate you, will let you check in. And and things like that. And a big part of it is is, is, is related to credibility. If, if you're doing a code reviews and, and then you get a stamp, uh, but under the condition that you come back and, and fix something, and if you go ahead and then and, and come back and fix the thing, you'll get extra credibility. And that's why people that's been in an organization for a long time are super valuable, because usually they know almost everyone at the company and they can they can be great at aligning different teams on the features or they can be great in, in in having commits where otherwise would have been really hard to do
1: these are fantastic it's insights it's,
0: it's 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 people it's just it's not processes or it's not teams it's just like it goes back always to the people
1: i mean isn't that at the core of what agile is right in a sense like people should not be forced to do something it should happen just organically just like any other relationship we have outside of work, if you just bring that in also, you know, teams want to benefit, they want to shine, they want to also measure impact, they want to have projects that are that make them look good, right? So all of exactly. these different uh, factors come into play when it comes to prioritization. Exactly,
0: exactly. It also how much it aligns the, uh, with, with what they're up to do and, 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 and all of that. Yeah, that's, that's another big important part too,
1: yeah. Fantastic. So that's a great segue for me to ask you about uh, prioritization and planning. So like, at which level is it done? Like, Do, do all project managers come together, for example, to talk about what they're going to build for the next quarter or maybe a year? Or is it more agile, like it happens more organically? Um, are there any um, grand... So for example, some organizations, they do these uh, PI, uh, meetings where they bring everyone together and they discuss what they want to build for the next quarter or two. Did any of this stuff happen where you worked?
0: It's, it's really a company by company. And so every then and while there will be a company priority. So a company will try to target a certain market or a certain product, or they're getting ready for a certain milestone. And so every then and while it's top to bottom, the CEO will wake up one day and it's like, okay, we need to do this, and then suddenly everyone is doing this. Uh, especially if you end up with uh, with uh, uh, like one of the projects that are uh, very important uh, close to the heart of the CEO, then then then, then you know that, that gets happened. That, that you, it's, it's, it's top to bottom. Mm-hmm. I've seen also the whole planning and and the, every three months we have to do this. I never seen those to be super successful but they also help and because every time you you have a certain strategy and you want to build features that 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 impacts the strategy uh, the most healthy way that I've seen is usually on the team level team or team plus level or the bigger team so usually you have your backlog there it has features it has uh, bugs and it has things that the team would think that 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 can move the needle and, um, and then then every week you kind of pick what to do or what to tackle. So it's, it's a mixture of both. But usually it's an, either a market opportunity that the teams w- want to tackle. Uh, a lot of times, it's, it's, it's sometimes, not a lot of times, it's top to bottom. And sometimes it's bottom to up. And uh, yeah. And, and sometimes there's those kind of big quarterly meetings that that happens. And well, there's like a whole... Discussion over what we're gonna build, and everyone is waiting to see what the result is. And these are not usually uh, the most uh, the best way to do it, in, in my opinion. It's, yeah.
1: All right. So, on the team level, um, did you, for example, use uh, the the you know the most popular agile ways? Did you use Scrum or Kanban, or was it a variation of the two? What have you seen in in these companies you worked for?
0: Also, I've seen a lot of them, but but I'm almost now at a certainty that uh, sprint is, is is not the ideal way to do it, and so I am almost sure there's no value in in having estimates. And you go over this whole work of, of, of you know estimating how much it's going to take. And I'm sure someone is going to say this is very valuable and it puts uh, clarity in the roadmap, but but you always go do this this exercise and and. So most of the time you're just kind of buffering and doubling your estimates to to do to, to over deliver uh, under promise and all of that but um, so yeah i've seen all of them the one that i think works the most is usually in these things the simple the simpler they are the better and if they start exceeding a certain threshold of planning uh, the good engineers will rebel will, will, not, will not like it And so they they, they will push back or they'll be unhappy and uh, it's usually not good. So so... let's say I have a
1: feature. Let's say I'm a product manager. I have a feature. Uh, I come to you. We define an epic, um, you know, like big thing. And then we we break it down to smaller stuff. Um, What happens then? You just pick it up and go and I just look up for your releases or?
0: The best way that I've seen it work and I'm, of at one point in my career that I have a high comment and that's kind of a really good way to do it. Always keep an open mind on, on, on how close to it. But usually you get, a, you get a feature and you split it. There's a lot of value in splitting it, no matter what. You, you split it kind of into little features. You try to make them as little as possible uh, as atomic, usually one unit of work. And then usually you do a stand up, which is uh, uh, either a daily or a um, uh, or Monday, Wednesday, Friday, and basically you would say, hey, I'm working on this part of the big feature. And it, it, once you split it, it becomes clear that this is part of the bigger picture. And, 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 and it, you just have one board for yourself. Like it's not with everyone else. You just have it for yourself. And then basically from with, with one look, you can see all the subtasks and you can see what's done in them, and you can see what you're, you're doing, what you're working on now. And you can also basically see progress. If, if there's this task that has been there for two weeks, then something is now right. And if you're always kind of moving things from the left to the right, right is done, then things are moving along. That's what matters in the end of the day, is just having progress. Yeah. Uh, and so, yeah, and, and also keeping the feature team small. So when you do a stand-up, don't put a stand-up for the whole organization. And where the the metric I see from the stand-up, if you're doing a stand-up and, and if you tune out, and if you're not paying attention, that means there's way more many people at at, at, at the stand-up. And so usually it should be really very small, very focused. Uh, the people that definitely are impacted by your work. And yeah, splitting a big task into smaller tasks and making sure there's always progress on it. Uh, is, is usually I've seen it a good way to do it. Whether you put a deadline or not, another favorite topic of every engineer, uh, I've I've seen enforcing deadlines and kind of really pushing for them not to be productive, but I've been convinced by managers to put deadlines and they made sense to me. So I don't have a strong opinion on that. Uh, I think a deadline, it's not definitely my... Uh, I had managers convince me that by having a deadline you just keep everyone focused and driving towards an end goal which kind of makes a bit of sense but 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 yeah having deadline or not is just, i think per, per per preference
1: got it fantastic insights i 100 agree with what you just said we can definitely spend an entire episode also breaking this down um, and I'm afraid we're getting to the you know last parts of our uh, session today. The last question I have for you, and it's something I love about GitHub a lot, is uh, we have a concept of trust by default. So we have access to pretty much everything we need to be productive. Uh, have you seen the same thing happen across the different organizations you worked at? Now, what do you think about this?
0: Yeah, absolutely. So, so any privacy or trust breach is usually incredibly costly for this company, like incredibly costly. It will impact their reputation. It will impact their uh, their bottom line. Uh, and, and, and so they usually uh, make sure that basically all the systems are properly uh, secured. And so usually if you need to open up uh, any ticket or any, if you need to, to see any if you basically need to look for any data, you usually have to have a very good business reason to do that. You need a you need a ticket or you need a Jira ticket or any any or permission to do that. And so yeah, usually these things are incredibly important and incredibly well tuned and incredibly well enforced too. So 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 any there's any 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 lack of compli- any any basic, if anyone is not compliant, usually there's definitely their professions on that because it's, they're so important and they can be so impactful. So so usually any engineering processes usually be, uh, mirror business uh, importance, and then so since that is very important and could be very impactful for the company, usually there's processes to guard against that or to uh, to, to, to make sure compliance is there.
1: Perfect. Last question from my end, uh, and thank you again very much for your time. These are fantastic insights. Reflecting back on your career to date, would you change anything? Would you actually go to work for startups uh, as opposed to, you know, working in all all of these big companies, or would you just do it the same way?
0: Uh, so I, I, enjoyed it a lot too. Thanks a lot, Basim. It was an awesome conversation. Uh, I think it depends on where you are in your career and. What's really great in computer science is, is just like the the field of trade-offs and 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 basically, by making any choice over the other, you you pick you pick you pick a certain side of a trade-off. Uh, but but yeah, early on on your career, uh, working on a startup or a mid-level uh, startup, basically a series C or series d is super valuable. but uh, working also on a, with a big company is such a good uh, credibility on your resume that's also super valuable. And it kind of goes back to where we started. And so, uh, yeah, like everything, there's trade-offs. You want to take as much risks, usually early on in your career. Uh, but then at the big tech, you learn a lot too. Uh, there's such a good, uh, they could be very valuable on your resume. And so... Uh, there's kind of this soul of deciding what you want to prioritize on. And, and, and it depends over where you are and, and what you want to prioritize on and things like that.
1: Very wise advice. George. thank you very much for your time. This has been a great conversation. Uh, for everyone listening in, I just want to remind you, George has a very fantastic newsletter. Everything we talked about today, he's going to be sharing it in his uh, emails. I'm not sure what's the frequency. You send them once a week or... For your I newsletter? Used,
0: I, used, I used to do once or twice a week, but now I've been doing every, maybe once every two weeks. But I okay. want to go back to once a week.
1: Sounds great. Yeah, once a week, I think, is, is, is a good cadence. Um, again, George, thank you very much for your time. Thank you very much, everyone, for listening, and we will catch you next time.
0: It was a pleasure, Basil. Thanks a lot.